All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, on the line, I've got the great Daniel L. Davis, former lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army. And he is the author of, I had it right in front of me a second ago, The 11th Hour in 2020 America, which is really good. And he's been writing up a storm over at 1945.com. And, um, well, you know, part of his background, I think a lot of y'all know this, Danny Davis, H.R. Uh, McMaster, and Douglas McGregor were all together in the big tank battle of 73 Easting in Iraq War One, and which was sort of, you know, all these guys' dream come true that they got to fight a land <laughs> tank battle with somebody finally. And uh, McGregor was in charge, but he's a naysayer, so he stayed a colonel. And um, McMaster is a politician, and so he became a general and national security advisor. And Lieutenant Colonel Davis was uh, not just in Iraq War One, but he also went to Iraq War Two and Afghanistan, where I hope you all know, and if you don't know this, you really should look into it. He was the heroic whistleblower of 2012 at the end of the surge, came forward and said, Petraeus is a liar, the war is lost. And uh, we'll go down in world history for his heroics there. But um, so the reason I have you on the show, though, is your expertise as a tank battler, but also just overall in uh, all of your great opinions and uh, takes that you have on the war going on in Ukraine right now. So uh, welcome back to the show, Danny. How are you, sir? I'm doing really good, Scott. Always a pleasure to be here with you. Cool, man. Happy to have you here. So the big news is that this long planned and predicted by you and others um, Russian escalation has begun. If I have it right, sir, when in mid-September, the uh, Ukrainian forces did that feint and took, I guess, all of Kharkiv and a bit of northern Luhansk there, um, that then Putin reacted to that by calling up 300,000 uh, reservists. And then I guess that meant transferring the regular army from their other positions around the country to the front for the reservists to take their spot. And I'm sure some of the reservists going to the front too. And then the idea was they were going to build up and build up and build up. And then it's going to come the hammer blow. And you've been writing about, well, they might go this way. They might go that way, et cetera, like that. But uh, I believe, you know, the first reports coming in now from the Kagans over the, at the Institute for Having Wars and over at Reuters, um, they're saying that the invasion has begun, the reinvasion, the doubling down by Russian forces has begun in Luhansk and Donetsk. Is that your understanding as well, sir? I mean, certainly that's what it appears to be, uh, though I, I, I don't think yet this is the big hammer. I, I think that this is basically the, the stage setter uh, because I still think that there's a, there's a, a larger hit to come. But it is unquestionable that the Russian forces have, have moved to the offensive in the Donbass 
really almost all along the line of contact, which is, you know, uh, covers large forces of over a thousand kilometers of front. Uh, and, and they've gone on the offensive all over the place. My, my guess is that what they're doing right now is, is uh, doing a lot of reconnaissance by force where they're finding out where the lines are strong and where the lines are weak because it's impossible to you know, have a continual line of defense over a thousand kilometers. It's equally strong everywhere. So I think that once they find one, possibly two uh, weak points in the line, then you may see the diversion of uh, large strike forces punching, trying to punch a hole in either one of those to, to get into the Ukrainian rear. Uh, that That's what I would do, and, and that certainly seems what they're set up to do, uh, but it remains to be seen because it's also at least a possibility that they're just going to go to some of the old Soviet doctrine of, of just you know slugging away, going right into the teeth of defense and just you know chewing everything up. That's a possibility. But I, I get the feeling that they're going to try to do some maneuver warfare uh, in the on the uh, along the the flanks <clears throat> or or in the weak points of the Ukrainian defense. That, that's that's where Ukraine would be the most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And does it go without saying that if he wants to go through Belarus and kind of try to swing around Kiev, that he'll be able to do that? Or it, that's certainly possible. They do have reportedly quite a number of troops up in there. But because uh, Ukraine has recognized that risk now, they've been spending months uh, building elaborate and and echelon defenses up at the border and all the way back into the country and certainly uh, multiple points around uh, Kiev. From what I've seen publicly uh, discussed by the Ukrainian authorities, they appear to have a pretty pretty solid defense uh, system. Uh, in system in depth uh, set up to defend Kiev. So I think that they're pretty good there, at least for the moment. But that comes at a price because if you have that much force structure and those that many troops that are guarding you know, your capital, which is reasonable, that means you're going to have less down in the areas uh, along the front toward the, uh, the, you know, the, the heart of where Russian forces are going to be coming from. And that's a, that's a trade-off I think they have to make because, look, the bottom line is regardless of what we've given or promised to give Ukraine, they have limited forces and they just can't do everything everywhere. And they have to take choice, make choices and make, take risk. And I think that Russia is ready to exploit that risk. So I, I wouldn't expect them to launch first into the into the uh, areas coming from Belarus because that's kind of what Ukraine is expecting. And so they have strong defenses there. I think they'll rather posture there and then come in south to the uh, to the weaker spots and then see what happens. Because if Ukraine then moves forces uh, to reinforce the, the the penetrations. You know, because they they want to try to stop the Russians from going too deep into their rear, they may pull forces off of there. And then if they weaken that to some certain a, a degree, and certainly the Russian intelligence services would be watching very, very closely. Mm-hmm. And if that gets to a certain level, then they may launch forth from there against a weakened defense. Uh, so it's just going to be a real difficult time for the Ukraine side right now, to be frank. Yeah, it sounds like it. So uh, how outmanned are they? Because it is Ukrainian soil, after all. They're the home team, so they have an advantage in terms of manpower there. Obviously, Russia's a bigger country, but is this 300,000 makes the difference completely, or what? Uh, You know, the problem is that, uh, and it's not been reported much in the Western press, unfortunately, so people don't have a complete picture. But the Ukrainians out are on what's reported to be their fourth round of mobilization uh, in the war here, whereas Russia is basically on their second, if you if you want to uh, look at what they did earlier in the war. Uh, 
but the problem is, you know, you had somewhere between nine and, and 10 million people leave the country. And those certainly weren't all women and children. Uh, and you, you are now left with a lot smaller pool from which to draw people. And of course, you start with the ones that have any kind of experience. And, and those are the ones that have gone in the first three rounds. Now that you're just taking anybody who can walk and and those are reportedly some really young kids as late as young as 16 and 17 and old in the 50s uh, because you're just getting everybody. And they're literally grabbing them off the streets uh, because they just can't get enough. They tried to mobilize 200,000 in this current mobilization here because of the extraordinary numbers of casualties they've lost uh, in in the Donetsk uh, region, especially in, in the Sildadar uh, and the Bakhmut fights, um, which, which have just been, you know, everybody's understanding they're the meat grinder fight battles. And, and even though most in the West want to talk about the Russian casualties, and certainly they have been substantial, uh, my estimate is based on the, the, all the reports I get from both sides and just the understanding of how the firepower uh, imbalance still favors substantially the Russian side, at least two to one and sometimes five to one, depending on where on the front you're looking. The casualties that the Ukraine side are, are suffering have been enormous, and that leaves a lot fewer of their trained forces, which they have reportedly kept in reserve uh, for this coming offensive. So they do have some uh, punch, but the question is how much and, and who has more. And right now, even the ISW, which, as you pointed out, is not exactly the, the most balanced uh, organization I've seen out there. Even they're conceding that the Ukrainian side is now undermanned, which was not the case uh, up through, this, I think, into September even. Ukraine actually through the summer had a manpower advantage over you, the Russian side. And certainly with a lot of the gear and the ammunition they'd gotten from the West, they actually had an advantage, not just on the home turf, not just the fact that they had spent eight years building defenses, but they also had a manpower advantage. That's been knocked down considerably because they've lost so many. They have a lot fewer to bring on. And the Russians, as you pointed out, have literally millions more military age males from which to draw. So right now that shift is back in the direction of Russia. They now have an increasing firepower advantage because they in September also mobilized their industry. And now then those things are starting to really crank out and put out the uh, the, the product, and, and those numbers are only going to go up. You're going to get more ammunition. You're going to get more drones, uh, more tanks. Uh, I, I mean, literally every kind of war material you can imagine is starting to just roll off the assembly lines right now in Russia. And uh, that's having the ironic uh, process of, of helping keep their economy uh, from being damaged by all these sanctions that we put on it because they've added so many jobs in the defense industry, ironically. Uh, so that's perversely, you know, working against our interest as well. I mean, right now, everything is starting to trend in the Russian side, and, and it's just going to be almost impossible for me to see how this works out good for the Ukrainian. Mm. Now, I mean, I'm not watching every Telegram channel and trying to keep up on every, you know, move of the different forces around the different towns in the east and all this stuff. So, you know, I'm getting it much more secondary kind of hand information from you and from Reuters and these kinds of things, which, you know, that's just the British, you know, government anyway, isn't it? Um, but uh, the thing of it is, you know, it's hard to make sense of, for example, the way that they claim the casualty numbers on the Russian side. You know, I read a thing about that catastrophe, which was, I think, last May for the Russian troops when they were trying to cross that river and they were yeah. all bunched up on the bank and the right. Americans helped right. the Ukrainians just obliterate them, right? And it was high hundreds of casualties, like 800 or 
600 or something were killed right then and there. But then when I read the press, they talk as though the Russians face a disaster like that approximately every single day, right? Like I read a a tweet last night that said, oh, the Russians are pouring in their forces. We killed 950 of them. And I thought, well, yeah, I mean, I guess that's possible, right? If they got some really good hits on some Russian forces bunched up somewhere, but that sounds like a hell of a thing for them to just do every day. And, but usually it's just the grind of the war rather than, one really big lucky strike on a barracks or on a yeah a big meeting or a bunch of guys all bunched up trying to cross a river together or something like that. So I know that they're exaggerating, but I just wonder, you know, how badly are they exaggerating? I know that it's a hell of a war, this artillery war. This is not like a bunch of guys, you know, patrolling Pashtuns in Paktika, you know, where they got a couple of homemade landmines and then run exactly. and hide. This is a serious ass fight over there between, you know, artillery pieces mostly, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and certainly the tanks are in there too. And I mean, it's a complete combined arms operation. I mean, everything is in play. And and I, I my honest assessment, now I'm not on the ground there. I certainly can't say with any absolute authority, but all the evidence to me suggests that these claims are just nonsense. And, and here's the reason I say that, because, I mean, all the way you can go all the way back to beginning in December and all the way through, you know, these tweets you're citing yesterday is that I keep seeing these claims that, uh, you know, Ukraine general staff reports that a thousand Russians were killed just in the last 24 hours or three thousand in the last three days or seven hundred and, you know, et cetera. And I'm like, where are all of these troops coming from? I mean, they would be losing literally, you know, 20, 30,000 a month. And I don't see any evidence of that. And then you have to ask the question, if even by the Western analysis, analysts admit that, you know, Russia is having anywhere from a, a 20,000 to, to seven to 8,000 advantage in artillery per day. And if the Russians are allegedly losing this many troops, then you would have to say just mathematically that the Ukraine side would have to be losing, you know, 2,000 per day, 3,000 per day if the same, you know, artillery is causing the same kind of casualties when it's triple the number, quadruple the number on the other side. Right. And, 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 and that doesn't sound right issue, either, right? Yeah, no, no, absolutely not. For sure it's not. Uh, but the, the thing that you also see methodically uh, since that Kharkiv operation in, in uh, September that you referenced – they pushed Russia all the way back to uh, this place called the Svatovo Kremenina line in, in the northeast. And that's pretty much where they, they stopped in October. And that's where the line has stayed since then. Russia stabilized the line since that time. And then they started uh, going on the offensive again, maybe in the middle of December, uh, in tactical locations, especially in the, the Solidar, uh, Bakhmut, Seversk area. And now that you see that uh, even in this uh, uh, Kremina area, the Spotovo area, in in addition to they now they took Solidar, uh, they have uh, Bakhmut like 75 percent surrounded. They're making significant gains in Seversk. Now that they're taking uh, more operations and and moving the line further to the west down in the Advivka area. Uh, and even making some lower, some small skirmishes in the Zaporizhia area. Uh, and literally everywhere you look, Russia's on the offensive. And you have to ask yourself the question, if Russia's losing 500 to 1,000 every day, how in the world are they maintaining this operational push 
relentlessly. And look, there are no reverses here. There hadn't been any reverses since October. I mean, if, if Ukraine's had any success on, on small scale counterattacks, they've gone back to their original places, but all the rest of them have been backwards. So it just doesn't add up that Russia is losing this massive amount and Ukraine's not. Otherwise, you don't, it doesn't make any sense that the lines keep moving west. Yeah. Well, folks, sad to say, they lied us into war. All of them. World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq War One, Serbia, Afghanistan, Iraq War Two, Libya, Syria, Yemen, all of them. But now you can get the ebook, All the War Lies, by me for free. Just sign up for the email list at the bottom of the page at scotthorton.org or go to scotthorton.org slash subscribe. Get All the War Lies by me for free. And then you'll never have to believe them again. Hey, y'all, Scott here. Let me tell you about Roberts and Roberts Brokerage, Inc. Who knew? Artificial bank credit expansion leads to price inflation and terribly distorted markets. If you've got any savings left at all, you need to protect them. You need to put some, at least, into precious metals. Well, Roberts and Roberts can set you up with the best deals on silver, gold, platinum, and palladium. And they've been doing this since 1977. Hey, if you just need some sound advice about sound money, they're there for you too. Call Tim Fry and the guys at 800-874-9760. That's 800-874-9760. Or check them out at rrbi.co. That's rrbi.co. You'll be glad you did. All right, now, so I don't want to spend too much time on Iraq War One, but I am interested in this big tank battle of 73 Easting, and I believe... You've written before, and the consensus is, if, is this correct, that if it had not been for the brilliance of uh, then, what, Lieutenant Colonel McGregor, things might have gone the other way. That it's not just that the Americans' tanks were so much better than the Soviet tanks of the Iraqis, it's that you guys had superior training and leadership but if the Iraqi side had had superior training and leadership, they would have whooped you, even with possibly inferior equipment. That, that's what it really comes down to, is how prepared you are for a fight like this. And then, so talk about that, but then also translate that to the situation in Ukraine. Yeah. They say, I mean, Ukraine has thousands of tanks sitting in a shed somewhere anyway, right? But we're going to pour in a few dozens of these or those German and American tanks, right. and these are going to make the difference somehow. So first talk about Iraq War One. Did I get that right? And then yeah, on close. to the east here. Yeah. What, what, I, what I've actually written just recently was that if you if you at the last minute just reversed uh, the, the sides and said, OK, all the Iraqis come out, you can take the American tanks and all the Americans, you can go and take the Iraqi tanks and then we'll continue the fight. Then even then we still would have won. That's what I was not, trying to paraphrase, but I screwed yeah. it all up. But thank you. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was close. <laughs> uh but the, the issue is, I mean, let, let's first of all just look at the technology. Without question, uh, an M1 at that time, A1, is much, much better than a T-72. Just, you know, if you're just looking at the capacities and the defensibility and the firepower, et cetera, M1A1 is a better tank, period. But it, it absolutely matters who's behind the controls. For example, uh, in that fight, there were uh, quite a lot of reports, not just in our unit, but across the theater of Bradley fighting vehicles, our, our infantry uh, fighting vehicles, taking out uh, T-55 and T-72 tanks sometimes with their firepower. And that's how 
we were able to inflict so high casualties. And look, that should never have happened. Those, those, even the T-55 tanks, any T-55 tank can take out any Bradley, is, is, no matter how modern it is, because it's an infantry fighting vehicle. And the armor is not sp- powerful enough to resist uh, a uh, 105 or a 120 millimeter uh, tank round. It, it'll go right through it and blow up. And hardly any of that happened because the Iraqis were terribly trained. I mean, they were terrible gunners. They couldn't hit the broadside of a barn. They fired a bunch of rounds at our units and just missed. I mean, I, m- one of my good friends who was a platoon leader in a, in a Bradley unit, uh, they, they uh, tank fired at him and just missed and gave him time to raise his tow launcher missile and take the tank out because it takes at least 10 seconds to cycle the next round. He had time to raise his tow launcher and fire. If it was just a decent gunner, my friend would not have survived that day. He certainly wouldn't have done the same in return. That translates into what's happening here because the issue is uh, all these great tanks were sending. Too many people, Scott, conflate the presence of NATO military gear with the presence of NATO military capacity, meaning, hey, since the M1s in Desert Storm you know, burned through the T-72s, put them uh, in, in Iraq and in Ukraine, and they're going to burn through the Russian T-72s or the Challengers and the, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, uh, um, what was it, the Leopard 2s, et cetera, or, or the AMX-10 from France. You know, all these vehicles, you're like, these are NATO stuff, man. They'll, they'll just burn through all those. And, and if you just have a, like a duel between them, that's it's entirely possible. But the problem is that you are asking people who have never even seen these vehicles to try and get trained on them in a matter of weeks and then use them the same way that it takes a, a, a military, a, a NATO or a U.S. in particular armored unit, uh, I mean, uh, like years to prepare for. It's not just that, you know, you learn how to pull the trigger and learn how to drive the thing and bam, go into combat. It's not like that. You have to do a whole lot more than that. And like, for example, when when we went to Desert Storm, okay, we had been training for well over a year to defend the east-west border in in east and west Germany at the time. And we were physically at one of these training events when Saddam invaded uh, Kuwait. And then we shifted everything from that moment forward. That was August 1990. uh, We trained like crazy before we were deployed in December of that year. And then even more intensely once we got on the ground from December to February before we crossed. So you're talking almost six months of intense training before we crossed the line of departure with all of our stuff. All the systems we have in place, all the logistics, all the maintenance, all the medical support. I mean, everything you can imagine of a whole system, everything together working towards common purpose. Now, you are now asking the Ukraine side to say, "Okay, you're not going to have a common military state. It's not just tanks and Bradleys. It's Abrams, Bradleys, Martyrs, AMX 10s, Challengers, Leopards. Leopards 1, Leopards 2s, and the stuff that they already have. This incredible mixed match of equipment that there are no systems for with any of the Western stuff. And so you've got to try and figure out how to operate these things and then make them work together in a combined arms operation for an offensive that you've never done. I mean, the closest you can come is that that uh, Kharkiv move, and that was more of a race than it was an offense because Russians reportedly only had a few thousand people up there. That's why they got routed so easily. But they anywhere that Ukraine has fought Russia, where they resisted and they have fought tough, Ukraine has not won a single battle in a year. That's telling, and that doesn't ever get talked about in the West. So to expect that to radically turn around now with no chance to train 
and I'm talking like a max minimum of six months and then preferably a year. I, I just don't see how they can be successful with this gear, no matter how good it is. Yeah, man. So, I mean, to zoom out a little bit to the politics of this thing, um, you know, and I know that's not your job, Colonel, but kind of it seems like and as we talked about then when millie was saying hey 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 you took curse on city back we should talk right now that was at the beginning of november he was yeah. essentially saying let's quit while you're only this far behind and not further behind and then they said no forget that we want to keep fighting but um well and certainly you know i don't know how equivalent this is to like oh you know, Karzai and Ghani want to keep fighting. Like, you know, I don't know. I know that there are certainly factions uh, in Ukraine who support the president's policy there of keeping the war going. I don't know how dominant they are or what, but certainly the state wants to keep fighting there. And, and, and certainly the state there is sort of a Karzai puppet style Potemkin regime. It's not exactly the same as in Afghanistan, but there's strong degrees of that anyway, post-2014 coup there and with all the U.S. government support for them. So I just, I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is this whole thing is just, maybe it's a matter of tempo, but the thing is just sliding downhill for Ukraine. They're just going to lose more and more men and more and more territory, and they're going to lose at least two, probably all four of those oblasts at the end of the day anyway, right? Right. That, that's that's my concern is that it just fundamentally it's just almost impossible. I mean, nothing's fully impossible. To, you know, that the, the impossible does periodically happen in human affairs because people are involved. Uh, but it's just I, I just can't tell you how high the hurdle would be for Ukraine to reverse this stuff. And it would have to be reversed, not just stopped. And I, and I think it was really telling because Millie in December uh, outright said, I see no path. Uh, or maybe it was even early January, so it wasn't long ago, I see no military path for Ukraine to drive Russia out of its country in the entire year of 2023. And now he tried to caveat that right after say, but, you know, hey, if, I mean, maybe they're going to fight or whatever, but, it, uh, you know, if people are thinking they're going to win, I just don't see it. Now, the fact that he said that in, in, in light of what the entire rest of the government of the U.S. is saying, that should be really telling. That the yeah. chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who you know, I, I have a lot of questions about some of his decisions and other things he's done in the past. I'm right with him on this one, and and am you know impressed that he was willing to say that and take the risk on that publicly. Is the it fair is, to say that he's speaking for the rest of the chiefs too when he says that? He should be, yeah, yeah. I and mean, that's that's the way it's supposed to be. Uh, but I, I cannot imagine any general officer who knows the reality would think anything different so this goes back uh, to mean, the question look, of the casualties right because there's this whole mythology here that the russians are just completely getting their asses kicked everything is going as planned if john mccain was here he'd be whooping every day <laughs> every this is this is going great and there's an analogy to afghanistan right there what do you mean the government and the army that we built can't stand for one day without our support you know like but but you guys made all these promises but it's only the people who believe them uh but so it sounds like there may be a very rude awakening coming soon where you know the um where the possibly the ukrainian military will simply be broken i mean i don't know well i mean that 
again, I'm not on the ground. I haven't been able to see any of this stuff firsthand, but just from my assessment and knowledge of military affairs and understanding of how combat power is built, it just does not seem like it's a rational position at all to suggest that Ukraine is going to be able to reverse this. And the higher likelihood is that they're going to end up broken and, and continue to get driven back in this offensive. I mean, after all, though, go back one year ago, the plan was always for Ukraine to lose. Nobody thought that they were going to do this well at all. The fact that their military is still a military and not a, you know, Mujahideen insurgent force based out of the far west or based out of Poland. That's the unique invention here. The plan always was that we're going to do like Rambo and back an insurgency after Russia destroys the military. So in other words, from their point of view, hey, we're a year ahead of schedule. We've been doing far more damage to the Russians than the insurgency could have done this whole year. And if the military breaks now, well, great, we'll just go right back to plan A. You know, the ironic part was, though, if they had done that, I mean, that you know, that that would have been, uh, you know, I guess what do they call it? Death by a thousand cuts to Russia because, uh, you know, an insurgency is going to cause sabotage and, you know, a hit and run tax. It's like the Taliban did, et cetera. Uh, but the casualties for the Ukrainian side would have been in astronomically smaller than what it has turned out because they didn't do what you call plan A there. They've gone with the conventional military path in this. I mean, I think the most you know, most moderate casualty count for the Ukraine side that the U.S. has ever admitted to has been around 100,000. And I think absolutely minimum, it's it's triple that, killed and wounded. I can't imagine it being any less. And that's that's what grieves me and drives me in all of this so much is that I see so many thousands of people paying with their lives and so many cities just getting raised to the ground unnecessarily because I just don't think that the end is going to be changed by all this sacrifice. And we could have at least, you know, cut this off a long time ago and minimized the damage and at least allowed more people to live and begin to start to rebuild their country. And instead the destruction is still not over. Yeah, it's terrible. All right. Now I'm sorry, just to clarify one last thing here, the whole point of the winter escalation is that the ground is frozen all the way solid. So yes, snow and ice is a pain, but mud is worse. And now the mud is completely frozen for the first you know, few inches of the topsoil or whatever, which makes it easier for them to drive their trucks and tanks around off-road and not have to stick to uh, you know, driving through every small town, up and down every roadway in the country and that kind of thing. Like in Iraq War II, where they just went around the towns, just drove through the desert yeah. and hooked around to Baghdad. So that's the difference. But then if that's the uh, correct, and then if that's right, then why'd they wait until the the uh, beginning of February here? Uh, isn't that pretty late to start? It's going to start thawing out in another month, right? Yeah, uh, it, it may, but there's two reasons why. Number one, they needed time to get their troops trained up to an adequate level. It doesn't do any good to to throw them into the fight you know, as soon as the ground freezes if they're not fully trained because then their chances of success are, are lower. And, and even waiting later with some disadvantage on the ground, it's improved if your training level is higher. That's one thing. But the second thing is that it's actually been a very mild and unusually mild winter so far in Ukraine. And only within yeah. the last two weeks has the ground really frozen to where oh, it's uh, sustained on or frozen because it was kind of frozen, then it would melt, frozen, melt, et cetera. So it, it remained really muddy. But now then it's for the most part frozen now. And then that gave, a, you know, maybe a full month. 
uh, additional training for the for the Russian side and an additional uh, opportunity to stock up on all the ammunition that they're going to need and other tools of war. So now that they're in a lot stronger position and but, yeah, that, I mean, the, the spring is coming and, and it's apparently not going to be, you know, as much of a frozen period of time as it normally is. And that does limit your opportunities. Yeah. All right. Well, just to wrap up here, and I'm sorry we're a little over time, but I mean, there are reports that I don't know if this is true or not, or I don't know. I, I still, I forgot to get around to reading the Washington Post version of this. I only read the little Newsweek version. It was kind of thin, but supposedly the CIA director offered, you know, 20% supposedly, which I don't know if that means all four provinces or just two there in the East or what it was, but apparently Ukraine and, and Russia both turned that down, but at least that's some indication. Oh, there's another thing that came out today where a Biden official said that they'd be willing to entertain the president of Brazil, Lula, to intervene as a negotiator. And we're staking out this hard position, but we will allow for Lula to get in here. So there's some indications of a possible diplomatic solution when, I mean, it doesn't look like, uh, well, I mean, again, if, even if they, if the Russians smash the Ukrainian military, they'll still have a tough insurgency on their hands. So, it would benefit both sides and all sides. Neither side really seems like they want to quit right now, but it's really in both sides' interest to quit right now if they can. You know what I mean? seems like before oh, the yeah. Russians, you know, lose more men trying to bite all this off and before the Ukrainians lose even more. I mean, they continue along this path. They might end up losing Odessa. Right, right. Yeah, and that, that's exactly what I've been arguing for a long time is that, you know, the people who say, oh, the Russians, they, they don't have any incentive to, to make a negotiation. They won't live by it. Well, no, they do. They, they have motivation to to get this cut off uh, uh, maybe almost as much as the Ukraine side does, uh, as, as evidenced by the fact that the Russians were willing to make a deal last April, actually March 29th to be specific, in the Istanbul meetings. And only when we sabotaged that, allegedly, or reporting according to many reports, uh, did that go away? And the Russia, okay, fine. Then we'll win on the battlefield. What we can't get a negotiation since you won't even talk. And now, then, the prices for negotiation is going to be higher because Russia has gained more since that time. And depending on what happens in this current round here, they may have even more. So the longer that the Ukraine side waits to negotiate, the less they're going to end up with. Which is what I've been saying since last March, and it's li we're lining up to be just that way. Yeah. All right, listen, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time on the show and all your great expertise, Danny. Always my pleasure, Scott. All right, you guys, that's the great Daniel L. Davis, retired lieutenant colonel from the U.S. Army, and you can find his writing at 1945. It's the number 19 and then spelled out 45, but, you know, if you just Google it, it'll come right up. And the book is The 11th Hour in 2020 America, which is really great. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, APSradio.com, Antiwar.com, ScottHorton.org, and LibertarianInstitute.org.